play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, actor Candace Cameron Bure, best known as DJ Tanner on the TV shows Full House and Fuller House, and Candace has written eight books, including her new children's book, Candace's Playful Puppy. Now, Candace loves food. She says her husband is an amazing cook. She's traveled around the world eating fancy schmancy things, but she still has a soft spot for the way that her parents would serve tacos growing up. The kind of gross thing was that we never had salsa and my parents would just say, oh, you see. We will reveal the mystery condiment later in the show. And I'm going to play some messages from you, the listeners. Some of you have a freaky allegiance to this condiment. Some of you put it in very strange places and you did not hold back when you left me these messages. And just in time for spring, while little bunnies are hopping around eating little carrots, we're going to talk about the history of carrot cake with the cake historian, Jessica Reed. But first, my conversation with Candace Cameron Bure. Good morning. Morning. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to my kitchen. Welcome to my rental living room. <laughs> oh, are you on a trip right now? I'm not on a trip, but I'm filming a movie. I'm in Vancouver right now, so I always rent a house. Ten-year-old me cannot tonight. believe that I'm doing this interview. Full House was my favorite show. I watched it oh. every single Friday. Yeah. And once when I was in my late 20s, I was working out at the gym and there was a Full House marathon on. So obviously I was on the treadmill for six to seven hours. And this guy came and he tried to change the channel. And I instinctively yelled, no, I'm watching that. And um, he looked up at the screen and I looked at him and he looked back at me. And Uncle Jesse looked at Uncle Joey. And Stephanie Tanner looked at Aunt Becky. And Comet the dog looked at Kimmy Gibbler, and this man backed away slowly and left me with my full house. I don't really have a great memory anymore, and I'm convinced this is because my brain is full of full house trivia. So I remember all these specific things, like when DJ got her own bedroom and it was decorated in shades of peach and lavender. But I also remember food-related episodes, like when Michelle Tanner found a Cheeto in the couch cushions, or on a very special episode of Full House, when DJ went on a diet so she could look good in a bathing suit at Kimmy Gibbler's birthday party. I remember she secretly fed her ham sandwich under the table to their dog, Comet, and I wished that I was that dog at that very moment. I'm sure you've heard this 10 billion times, but I just have to say, seeing you here, I feel like I'm having a flashback to like the best time in my life when I was a kid and looking forward to TGIF every Friday to watch Full House. Do you just kind of have this place in people's childhoods? I do. I do hear that a lot. And I love it. It never gets old. It's the sweetest thing. You know, as long as they're good memories that I'm bringing back, I love hearing it. Yeah, it's slumber party night. I wanted to know a little bit about how you got started with your career, because it's pretty amazing that both you and your brother were child actors on these huge shows that were so big in the 80s. So how did that happen? 
Well, I was born and raised in LA and came from like a very normal middle-class family. My dad was a school teacher. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. And my mom had a girlfriend that had her son in the business. And so she would say to my mom, like, oh, your four kids are so cute. Let me give their picture to my agent. And after a couple of years, my mom said, okay. And we knew nothing about entertainment because my parents weren't in it, but they submitted a picture and the agent said, yeah, I'll see the kids. And next thing I know, I'm auditioning for commercials. That's so crazy. And so if that didn't happen, you know, based on now in your life, you've written so many books and, you know, I can see from following you on Instagram, like you're interested in things like fitness and religion. What do you think you might've done otherwise? Oh, goodness. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I mean, you kind of nailed two of the things that I do love. I really love fitness. I really love fashion. I could have maybe been somewhere in, in, in the fashion world, but, um, you know, it really shaped me having started at five years old acting. It was like the dream I never knew I was going to have, but I always loved it, always enjoyed it. And I never wanted to stop. But she did take a break for many years to raise her children. Candace is married to a former NHL player. And when he was playing for the Florida Panthers, they moved to Florida. One of the things I was really surprised to read when I was researching is that when you lived in Florida, you actually had a cafe, the Milk and Honey Cafe. Wow. Yes, I did. (laughs) That was a long time ago. But yeah, my, my husband, he was a professional hockey player for 12 years in the NHL and Before he retired from hockey, he knew he wanted to transition into food and wine because it's been such a passion of his. He's always loved it, uh, as have I. And so that was like one of the first things he was transitioning into. While he was still playing, we opened up the Milk and Honey Cafe, which was just, you know, a great little restaurant. We had an incredible chef. It was not fancy, but it was very fine food. So you also have a winery, right? We do. We've had it for many years and that's what my husband does now. And we're a very small production, but we are a boutique uh, winery and we make a very, a very high end quality product. There was a dish that you said your parents made at least four (laughs) times a week. What was that? Turkey tacos. (laughs) We always ate tacos. I think because with a, a family of six people, it was one of the easiest things to make. And my parents were always trying to teach us to be healthy and eat those lean proteins. So we always had turkey instead of beef, but it was something that us kids could make on our own that my parents didn't have to help because that was the only cooking element was the ground turkey. And then it was like shredding lettuce and tomatoes and cheese. (laughs) But the kind of gross thing was that we never had salsa. And my parents would just say, oh, use ketchup. So we always had ketchup on our tacos and I didn't realize that was a weird thing until I would go out with friends or go to friends' homes and they would make tacos and I'm like, oh, do you have any ketchup? And it was like, what? (laughs) But to this day, I love ketchup on my tacos. They're good old American tacos covered in ketchup. (laughs) That's so funny. So if you go to like a taqueria or you make tacos that seem a little bit more authentic, will you still put ketchup on them? No, I won't. I actually, I'm a big foodie, so I don't smother everything in ketchup, but it doesn't gross me out. Well, if I'm at my parents' house, I'll I'll have them with ketchup.
Raise your hand if you don't have a bottle of ketchup hanging out in the door of your refrigerator. We squirt ketchup on fries and hot dogs and hamburgers, but inspired by Candace's ketchup tacos, I asked you for your ketchup confessions. Where do you put ketchup where it doesn't necessarily belong? The only way to eat Kraft macaroni and cheese is with ketchup mixed all the way through it. I can't eat any type of macaroni and cheese without ketchup. Not even super fancy mac and cheese. Creamy, cheesy, tomatoey bowl of pasta. Ever since I was a kid, I put ketchup on my macaroni and cheese. I still do it to this day. It's the best. It's the best. When I was a kid, I would sneak into the kitchen, grab a paper cup, put about a quarter cup of ketchup in it, like an equal amount of Parmesan cheese, mix it up and eat the paste with a spoon. It was so good. I still harbor a secret desire to do that when nobody's around. But this one was my absolute favorite message. Hi, Rachel. It's Chelsea Lynn. My dad's love of Heinz ketchup, Heinz only, is a standing joke in my family. Ever since I was a kid, I can't remember a meal in which he hasn't slathered everything in ketchup. My husband, when we were early dating, made this beautiful Chinese meal and spent all this time and my dad dumped ketchup all over it and my husband was so horrified. But one of the funny stories that my family continues to tell is that when my little brother was very small, probably three or four, my dad had to go away on a business trip and rather than you know cuddle with an old sweatshirt or something he was missing him a lot and he asked to cuddle in bed with the Heinz ketchup bottle and he just like snuggled up in bed with it <laughs> and it reminded him of dad if you're looking for the king of ketchup it is him without a doubt the original ketchup was absolutely nothing like the sweet tomato condiment we know today. It contained approximately zero tomatoes. So the first ketchup was an ancient fermented fish sauce from China. It was called gethgup or kochup or ketsiup. I'll tell you, I've only seen these words in writing, so I am probably not pronouncing them correctly, but they all sound a little bit like ketchup. And this funky fermented condiment is old. It was mentioned in texts as far back as 300 BC. The fermentation of the original ketchup meant that it could withstand long ship journeys. So these sauces spread along trade routes to Indonesia and the Philippines. And that's where it was first tasted by British traders in the 1700s. And that is where ketchup started to change. In the 18th century, ketchup became an almost generic term for a fermented preserve sauce in England. According to History.com, the British made ketchup out of fermented oysters, mussels, mushrooms, walnuts, lemons, and celery. And even though tomatoes found their way to England from South America in the 1500s, people avoided them for hundreds of years because they thought they were poisonous. It wasn't until 1812 that a tomato-based ketchup was debuted. It was invented by an American scientist named James Meese, who said the choicest ketchup came from love apples, which is what they called tomatoes back then when they considered tomatoes to be an aphrodisiac. But ketchup wasn't successfully bottled until Heinz did it in 1876. They were the first to include vinegar, which made it shelf-stable and kept it from going bad. Heinz proudly put its ketchup in a glass bottle so customers could see that there was no mold inside. And the 1876 recipe is exactly the same Heinz as we still eat today. All right, time for a quick break. But when we come back, we'll catch up with Candace on her last meal. Womp womp. 
If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. What would you choose to have for your last meal? Okay, I really want to hear what other people's answers are, <laughs> but I, I had to, I had to think about this, and it, it was kind of like my birthday meal because I always want to eat like exactly what I want. It's like I don't care about anything on my birthday. I'm gonna enjoy it, and so I love uh, spaghetti batarga. It is one of my favorite dishes. I absolutely love fish, but I love. Batarga. So anytime I'm at a fine Italian restaurant or at home, we'll make it. But I don't eat pasta that often. So that that in itself is a big deal to me. I really savor pasta. Yes. And so, um, and then my husband, he's an incredible chef. He is just fabulous. And we have a wood fire oven in our in our home, like in the backyard. So he cooks a lot out there, but he makes steaks and I I prefer a filet (laughs) and he uses all these incredible rubs and spices on it and he uses an espresso salt on it that is so good and it brings out so much flavor so I would really like that filet mignon as well the way he cooks it and then I would wrap it up with carrot cake because that is my all-time favorite cake and dessert, maybe with a little side of cinnamon ice cream. For her last meal, Candace Cameron Bure wants spaghetti batarga, her husband's filet mignon, and carrot cake with cinnamon ice cream. Batarga is the egg sac of a fish that has been salted, pressed, and dried into a brick. It comes very compact, so it, it doesn't look like when it's on sushi. So when you buy it at the store... I don't know how to explain the texture of it. it. Is it kind of like a chunk and you grate it? Exactly. It's a big chunk and you grate it. That's why it's not like these individual little eggs. It's got this wonderful 
salty mm. taste to them. And I'm also a huge caviar fan. I love caviar. So it, it has the essence of that type of flavor. Well, you're married to a Russian, so you have access to <laughs> caviar. <laughs> the first time I had caviar was with my father-in-law. Mm. I had never had it before I met Val. And then I realized what I was missing out on. But Target is a delicacy in places like Italy and Japan. But according to Sirius Eats, the first record of batarga goes back to ancient Egypt in 10th century BCE, where just like ketchup, it was invented out of necessity. It was a preserved food that wouldn't quickly go bad. And spaghetti batarga is a very simple dish. So you just heat up a lot of olive oil, you put some garlic in, and then you whisk in the finely grated batarga, the little fish eggs, so that it becomes a creamy sauce. You mix that up with pasta, you add a little fresh lemon, maybe some herbs, and what you get is Candace's favorite meal, spaghetti batarga. Okay, so that was dinner, and when we come back, we're going to have dessert. We're serving carrot cake. Does Candace Cameron Bure like raisins in her carrot cake? Stick around to find out. Candace wants to end her last meal with a big slice of carrot cake. A few months ago, just to kind of break up the pandemic on Facebook, I put up something for my friends saying, tell me your ideal favorite birthday cake because I'm going to make a list. So when it's someone's birthday, I'll know what you want. And the most popular by far was carrot cake. And I was so surprised by that. I thought people would want really? chocolate cake or, you know, like confetti cake. I feel like half the people said carrot cake. Wow, that is surprising to me. I always felt like the loner kid with the birthday cake because when I was a kid, I always <laughs> wanted the carrot cake. I think that was my mom's favorite cake. And okay. I think that's why it became mine. But all my friends when I was little were like, ew, carrot cake. <laughs> but oh, to this day, I mean, I, I trust me, I could put down a carrot cake, the whole thing. I love it so much. Well, the big question always <laughs> is raisins or no raisins. Oh, golden raisins. Yes. I'm a hundred percent, but they have to be golden raisins. I like the texture of carrot cake when it's chunky. I mean, I've had so many different <laughs> kinds. We've made so many <laughs> and I like the garbage or I, I, I shouldn't say the garbage. The I was going to say the, <laughs> the garbage pail. I like the kitchen sink carrot cake. So I like pineapple in it. I like the golden raisins. I like walnuts. I really like the chunky texture of it, but it can't be too bready that it feels like a muffin because some of them can feel like a, like a harvest muffin or something. Yeah, that's too healthy. You need cake. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I, yeah, I want the, I want the, the cake version and then the cream cheese frosting I mean, it has to be cream cheese frosting. Yeah. And that is like, I get angry at a carrot cake that does not have cream cheese frosting. I'm like, this is no carrot cake. What are you doing? This should just be, I don't know, ban. Like you can't make a carrot cake without cream cheese frosting. It's true. But I also like the image of someone like you who comes across as such a happy person just getting <laughs> so angry at a carrot cake without frosting. One year, my husband got a carrot cake. Usually my daughter makes the carrot cake now for my birthday, but one year my husband bought it and the bakery told him it was a carrot cake, but it was a spice cake. No. 
And I can't even tell you how disappointed I was. It was like, it ruined, it didn't ruin. I'm exaggerating, of course, but it was like, I waited all day for that carrot cake only to take a bite. And I was like, this is spice cake. It was so disappointing, like a bad finish to the end of a great day. To learn the history of carrot cake, I called upon Jessica Reed, author of The Baker's Appendix and the website The Cake Historian. Just like ketchup and batarga, carrot cake's roots are actually quite ancient. But the carrot cake they ate in medieval times was nothing like the fluffy cream cheese frosted version we eat today. The ancient history, you kind of have to go all the way back to carrots themselves, which are native to um, modern day Iran and Afghanistan. Early carrots, they were purple. Interestingly enough, they made their way westward and were cultivated by the Dutch to the orange color. So you're not getting an orange carrot until the Dutch cultivate that in the 17th century. Okay, I have to ask if you know the answer to this, because I was told years ago that the Duke of Orange has to do with this, like that they purposefully kind of invented an orange carrot as a gift for him for his birthday. Do you know if that's true? That is a rumor I have heard. I can't substantiate that 100%, but it is one thing that I have read in various sources. So you have now this orange carrot. It's in here in the medieval times. And what you have is pudding. Prior to any kind of carrot cake whatsoever, you're having puddings sweetened by carrots because sugar is an incredibly expensive ingredient. Most people can't afford it, but people can grow and cultivate carrots. You know, they can boil it up and mash it and put it in their pudding and it's sweet and it's flavorful. And, you know, if you add in dates or figs or something, you have something even more sweet. So before you have any kind of carrot cake, you have these puddings. But Jessica's not referring to the kind of puddings that we traditionally eat here in the U.S., like chocolate pudding with whipped cream or rice pudding from a diner. If you happen to listen to our last episode featuring Bridgerton author Julia Quinn, you'll remember that British puddings are mushy ingredients put into some kind of casing, then steamed and sliced. So a steamed cake could be a pudding, but also a sausage is a pudding. The fluffy baked carrot cake that we know today didn't come until much later. Carrot cake is an interesting one in that you don't see it really show up in a lot of literature. You don't see it in cookbooks until like the early part of the 20th century. There were other recipes that existed that called themselves carrot cake, but they were really almost more like latkes. Oh, wow. So like a fried carrot fritter? A fried carrot fritter or something in puff pastry, that sort of thing. The earliest carrot cake recipe was a uh, cookbook from 1929 called the 20th Century Brides Cookbook that was put out by a Wichita, Kansas woman's club. So that was the earliest one that contained like grated carrots, walnuts, spices. Jessica says grated carrots, walnuts, and cinnamon are what separates a carrot cake from the stupid dumb spice cake that tried to ruin Candace's birthday. What is your opinion on raisins? Raisins or no raisins? What do you say? I don't like raisins in my carrot cake. I like walnuts. I love walnuts in my carrot cake. I feel the same. I like raisins on their own, but I don't like them hiding inside of things. Yeah, I think very simple carrots, walnuts, cinnamon, classic cream cheese frosting to me, is a really perfect carrot cake. The cream cheese frosting is a fairly modern addition. This was an American invention, and people started slathering cream cheese frosting on carrot cake in the 1960s. There's varying theories about that, whether there was a Pillsbury marketing campaign 
they would create these advertorial booklets with recipes in them that got sent out to homeowners or I hate to say it, but given to housewives when they went grocery shopping that had a series of recipes in them or a coupon, you know, promoting the product. And there's some food historians that say that cream cheese frosting developed out of, you know, one of these promotional campaigns. Carrot cake's popularity ebbed and flowed. Well, there were two periods actually that was kind of interesting that carrots, carrot cakes were really popular. One was during World War II, primarily in England, where they promoted carrots very heavily because there was an excess of carrots. And so you could use carrots and cakes, whereas sugar was highly regulated. And then in the 1970s, when you had this health boom and people were baking with whole meal flours and Carrot cake was looked at as being this healthy alternative to every other cake that you could get. Candace says her husband Val is the main cook in the family, but she still finds her way into the kitchen. And I don't want to embarrass you, but when I was doing my research, I found this little video deep in the internet where these things live. <laughs> you had prepared dinner for your kids and your son was sitting on the counter and you were, you know, in the kitchen and he was eating chicken and he said, Oh, good. It's cooked all the way through. <laughs> and you said, they get nervous when I cook. <laughs> this is true. This is true. I don't think so much anymore, but um, the whole reason my husband even took over is because, well, he's passionate about cooking, you know? So I would make dinner and lunch all the time, but he kind of just slowly pushed me out of the kitchen. <laughs> and it wasn't because my food was bad. It was just because he was so passionate about it. Uh -huh. So over the years, it just got delegated to him. So then anytime I would cook, my kids would be like, uh, are you sure? Like mom's cooking. But again, not because I can't. Okay. They weren't used to seeing me cook as nearly as much as their dad but I may have burned a few things along the way you know well you know burnt is better than raw I guess when it comes to chicken true <laughs> do you have something that you make that your kids love that you have to make it's your thing oh funny I used to and I would say this is when they're much younger and they are such staple American meals uh -huh. because it's what my mom taught me to make yeah so my kids really love my meatloaf hmm. that I make. And it's, I think it's fantastic. My husband loves it too, but it was like my mom's recipe. And again, <laughs> the tacos, yeah. bring the tacos back up. <laughs> my kids do not eat it with ketchup. And that was Candace Cameron Bure's last meal. Make sure and pick up her new book. It's called Candace's Playful Puppy. Thank you so much for doing the show with me. I really appreciate your time. Oh, you're so welcome. This was so much fun. I love talking about food. So thanks. And the book is out now. The book is out now anywhere online or where books are sold. Thanks to the cake historian, Jessica Reed. You can check out her beautiful bakes on her Instagram page. It's cake underscore historian. And thanks to all of you who sent in your ketchup confessions. I'm sorry that I couldn't play them all, but if you ever want to be a part of an episode, sometimes I send out these little calls. Make sure you're following along on Instagram. It's hello, Rachel Bell, B-E-L-L-E. -E. A couple weeks ago, we brought back Quarantine Cooking Club. If you're new around here, welcome. Uh, Quarantine Cooking Club is something that we started last year when we were really bored, actually around this time of year when the pandemic first started. Uh, I choose a dish 
dish that was selected as a last meal by a past guest. I post it on Instagram and then we all cook that dish. Any recipe you want, you just post your picture, tag me on Instagram, slap on the hashtag quarantine cooking club, and then I share it for everyone to see. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me, original theme music by Prom Queen. Thank you to everybody who has left a review for the show. If you have a spare moment and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we would be so appreciative if you left a little review. Thanks to NunaGina0524 who left the latest review. They said, I listen to a lot of podcasts and this has been my favorite. And then she goes on and says a bunch of nice things about me that I'm too embarrassed to repeat. So you can go check out NunaGina0524's review and then leave your own. I'm Rachel Bell and this is your last meal. 